to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. Almost 140 years after the end of the Civil War, a high school history teacher was cleaning out the attic of his late father's home in Pittsburgh when he came across a box of old papers. When his family looked more closely a little while later, they discovered these were Civil War letters written by soldiers serving in a brigade of Vermont troops. How did they get to Pittsburgh? What was the family connection? And more important, what was the story that these letters told about the young men who went to war? We'll hear that story from Carlton Young, author of Voices from the Attic, The Williamstown Boys in the Civil War, tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu. Dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University on a cold well, chilly October night in 2017. It's a dark, quiet campus, but I do not speak for the campus or the university or anybody else. My guest, likewise, speaks only for himself, as we always do here on Civil War Talk Radio. It's the day after Halloween, a big event here in Greenville. A couple of years ago, the massive student party that takes place every year on Halloween at one uh, turned into a, a near riot at one of the housing developments, uh, one of the student housing centers. Uh, didn't happen last year, and as far as I know, nothing bad happened this year. We've calmed down a little, but they make a big deal out of it here. You kind of have to because uh, football's not the thing this year. Although ECU did not lose a game for the second week in a row. They beat BYU two weeks ago and had a bye week this week, so they're on a two-week not-losing streak, uh, enjoying that while it's lasting. 
Halloween is a, a curious holiday, how much it has been taken over by young adults and even old adults. It was a child's holiday when I was uh, little, back in the 19th century. My fondest Halloween costume memory, though, does remain a, a college party back in 1977 when our uh, uh, we decided back, back in the dorm to have a, it was not a Halloween party, it was a costume, it was a 60s party. The 60s were only seven years in the past, but already the idea of uh, hippies or Sergeant Pepper uh, seemed like good costume ideas. And when, uh, three of my friends and I thought we would go as the Beatles, very original. Went to a costume store, couldn't find anything, but they had a nice uh, Union General's uniform and then a Confederate General's uniform. So we ended up going as uh, General Grant and General Lee and Abraham Lincoln, uh, the fourth guy wasn't with us that day, and showed up at the 60s party and exclaimed in mock surprise, 1960s? We didn't know. Uh, That's when I knew I was going to be a historian, I think. Well, it is... uh, History is a good thing to study these days because there is so much going on in the public eye. While it is my my intent on this show to refrain from political commentary, it's impossible to ignore when political figures bring Civil War history into the public view. And I have to say that as a teacher of Civil War history, it has been a kind of thing you just never thought you would experience to turn on the car radio or look at the news on the screen and hear people discussing the three-fifths compromise and the compromise of 1850 and other famous compromises of the 19th century, all in reaction to uh, the public figure who recently said that the Civil War was caused by a failure to compromise. That, of course, drew a lot of immediate reaction from historians, uh, pointing out there had been many compromises between the North and South, uh, mostly focusing, all of them focusing on the issue of slavery in one fashion or another. And it was uh, even the the Crittenden Compromise rejected in 1861, right up to the very moment before the war, shows there was no shortage of attempts to compromise. Uh, That was hardly the, the reason for the war to break out. Historians know that. If you're listening to this show, you know that. You know about the the the, how, how things came about through the 1840s, 1850s. But if you have not read a book since Shelby Foote published uh, for the first time, if if that's all that someone knows about the Civil War, if they're still living in the lost cause uh, dream world of the past, then they might indeed say something like that. It's uh, While it's gratifying to have the Compromise of 1850 showing up on social media as a topic of discussion, it's uh, discouraging that we are still uh, 50 years after this, uh, after, after, well, more than that, uh, almost 100 years. uh, Let's get the math right. 1940, let's say 60 years after the the, uh, revisionist school of of historians lost sway and then and, and passed into the historiographical dustbin, uh, the idea that only politicians and not serious issues like slavery caused the war. Uh, we thought that was long past. We've been teaching like it's long past, and, uh, and yet it keeps popping up. So I will continue to record this show for the next, uh, however long is necessary, 40 to 50 years until uh, the people 
stop repeating those old myths. And that should keep me in business for a while. It would certainly keep us in business here for the next uh, four weeks. Uh, we've got shows going uh, one, two, three, four, five. Shows going to the end of the academic year, uh, academic semester in December here of 2017. Next week, Gary Cross, Gettysburg licensed battlefield guide, will be with us. Uh, two weeks from now, November 15th, Gordon Ray with the uh, final volume of his magnificent series on the Overland Campaign will join us. After Thanksgiving, uh, Anthony Oski will bring us Civil War news from Philadelphia. He's written Philadelphia and the Civil War. And then on December 6th, Sam Elliott with a book about John C. Brown, not the other John Brown, but John C. Brown of Tennessee. And we'll find out who he was and what he did. We'll take a break between semesters after that and come back in January. We've got uh, Terry Alford on John Wilkes Booth, Chuck Calhoun on Grant. Lots of good shows coming up in the new year of 2018 as well. You can find out about it, as always, at www.impedimentsofwar.org, where Mark Gaffney tells us what's coming up, where you can donate to the show. And your donations this year until the end of 2017 will be passed on to the memorial uh, building in Cattaraugus County, New York, saved from the Wreckers Ball by Mark Dunkelman and the Citizens Advocating Memorial Preservation. Thank you to all who have already contributed to that cause. The rest of you, time to pull out the... uh, the, the typing finger, go to impedimentsofwar.org, touch the PayPal button, uh, contribute uh, to this cause. Anything you send me, I will forward on to this preservation effort uh, done by a friend of the show, and uh, hopefully we can all help that happen. Well, I'm looking forward to our discussion. We'll bring uh, our author, Carlton Young, on in just a moment. I will say it has been a... Uh, uh, a, a long day here at Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters. I was honored to be nominated as uh, a, a nominee for the Board of Governors Distinguished Teaching Award that they give out here at ECU. They give out several of them. It's not like it's not that special. And it turns out it's actually less special than that. Uh, to if you are nominated, you have to fill out a portfolio. The, for which the instructions say must not exceed 50 pages. Well, I laughed. Who has, who's going to fill out 50 pages for something like this? I'll do the bare minimum. I did the bare minimum, and it came out to 48 pages by the time I had answered the questions and supplied all the documents. And as a result, uh, last night I did something I have not done since I was a young uh, associate attorney, uh, the legendary all-nighter. Uh, 5 a.m. this morning I finished the award portfolio, and then it was time to prepare for classes today and for this show. Uh, So I'm at my absolute best at this moment, uh, red-eyed and eager, Uh, but finally it's that hour-long vacation when I can stop thinking about academic trivia and talk about the Civil War, which we'll do now with our guest, Carlton Young, the author of uh, the book Voices from the Attic, The Williamstown Boys and the Civil War. Uh, Dr. Young, are you there? Welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Uh, glad, glad to have you here. Uh, your book came to me. I'm trying to remember how, if, if 
maybe somebody from the publisher contacted me. If you contacted me directly, I, I'm trying to recall. As I said, I'm sort of befogged at this moment. Yeah, I, I, I think uh, you contacted me, but uh, I'm not sure where you heard about the book. Somebody told me about it then. Somebody said they, they saw you speak and said, you got to get hold of this guy. That's what it was. Yeah, I, so I, I, contact- around, I give a lot of talks at the Civil War roundtables and historical societies. I've been uh, traveling quite a bit. Well, that, that's that's how it happened then, and, and I, I, as listeners to the show know, I can, I can be skeptical about books published by small publishing houses. Somebody who's enthusiastic about the war, they've they've read Shelby Foote and they watched Ken Burns, and now they're going to write their own book. And uh, then they contact me and say, "Hey, I want to be on the show." I'm like, well, we'll see about that. Right. Uh, but in this case, uh, what an interesting story. Um, uh, I guess I'll start from the top. You found these letters in, uh, in in your father's attic in in 2002. Uh, tell us a little bit about this, how this came to be. Right. So this is uh, in Pittsburgh, and uh, you know, I don't know if you've ever been involved with clearing out a house before, but uh, there's a lot involved in it. You know, my parents had passed away, and they'd been living in that house for half a century. And so when you're trying to clear a place out pretty fast, it's not just uh, furniture and appliances, but there's all that stuff, you know, all the things in drawers and closets and storage areas. And we're going through it all trying to decide what to keep and what to get rid of. And it was the, uh, the house I'd grown up in here in Pittsburgh. And mm-hmm. so I wasn't expecting to find much of anything that I wasn't familiar with. But up in the attic, we found this very old wooden box. I'd never seen it before. And we took a quick look and opened it up. It, it was just jammed full of these very old letters. And so at the time, uh, didn't really have time to look at them, but uh, fortunately we kept them because looking back on it, I can picture I probably had a few moments <laughs> thinking, oh, I don't want to go through all this and I considered throwing them out. But, uh, oh, no. Yeah, but uh, we did, that went into the uh, keep pile and uh, then uh, eventually I did, I uh, started looking at a couple of these letters and realized they were written by Civil War soldiers. And so I had to try to decide, you know, what am I going to do with this? And the, um, you know, my, my background was uh, as a high school history teacher. I'd been uh, teaching advanced placement American history for many years. And uh, so um, I had an interest in history, but I, I really had never become uh, particularly interested in the Civil War that uh, yeah, that was just not something that grabbed me. And and as far as uh, you know, advanced placement, I, I don't know if you've ever looked at the AP exams, but mm-hmm. uh, the one thing they virtually never ask is anything about a battle or a general that, uh, for for whatever reason, they just don't seem to consider military questions to be uh, significant in American history. Mm-hmm. So I, I never taught much about it. Yeah, I taught the basics and. Uh, same thing, I taught uh, night classes at community college, uh, survey classes, and just uh, the basics of uh, Civil War there. So, so I had a pretty limited background. But uh, fortunately, I had a couple of friends who were much more Civil War buffs and called them in, and they took a couple of look at, you know, at some of the letters and said, uh, yeah, these are really good. We, yeah, we need to do something. Uh, so this was uh, Ed Hill and Bill Lutz, who were local uh, teachers, and they said, uh, yeah, we've got to do something of this. So then the next step was to call in our wives. And the, um, my wife, Carol, and Ed's wife, Nancy. So the five of us began to go through these letters. We had weekly meetings 
trying to uh, get them organized and set up, you know, and into, well, first of all, into asset-free folders to protect them and organize in terms of who wrote each one from where to whom and everything, and then to try to read them. And, and reading ended up being a very long, difficult process with these, uh, these letters. That, um, I, I, yeah. I love the idea that you worked as a team on this because uh, anyone who's, who's written a Civil War book and done that kind of research has spent hours in the archives looking at uh, 19th century handwriting and, and trying to decipher it and and to uh, typically scholars do those sort of things alone but now but but you had a team and that that must have been extremely helpful right because um yeah as we would in our weekly meetings when we'd have these letters there was this this problem of so many of the letters using the cross writing where they would finish a page and then turn the page sideways and write perpendicularly, you know, right across what they'd already written. And th- that, that plus just the, the difficult handwriting by itself um, meant that oftentimes we'd be sitting there as a group and we'd be turning the letters one way or another trying to decipher them and um, we'd get stuck on a word you know, and sometimes we'd sit there for two or three minutes in silence or mumbling to ourselves and then usually somebody out of the five of us somebody would figure out the word and they'd shout it out and we'd all say yeah that's it and then we'd go on to the next word and that was to to, to save paper they was uh, they would write sideways across the letter yeah these were frugal uh, new englanders and Mm -hmm. so um they're uh to save paper they would uh just uh write directly across the lines they'd already written the perpendicular to them and that is a challenge. I, 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 let me say, I've seen those in, in archives as well. Where, when you and when you find that, you think this is definitely going to be a challenge to read. Uh, we have plenty of paper at Civil War Talk Radio, but not all the time in the world. We've got time to take a break right now. We'll take a short break. Come right back. Talk with more with our guest, Carlton Young, author of Voices from the Attic: The Williamstown Boys in the Civil War. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Stimulating talk. It gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. 
listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Carlton Young, author of Voices from the Attic, The Williamstown Boys of the Civil War. We learned in the first segment that uh, Mr. Young found a box of letters in his father's attic, cleaning out the house, and uh, discovered they were letters from Civil War soldiers. So you and, and family and friends are going through these letters deciphering them, recording them, organizing them, uh, storing them carefully in, in archival storage materials, uh, doing all the right things. Uh, what? When did you realize there's really a great story here? Yeah, it, um, and, and actually, I, uh, we were going a lot of different directions at once because not only were we you know, getting enthralled in the stories the soldiers were telling the letter, mm-hmm. but um, we also were trying to figure out a lot of mysteries like uh, where these letters came from, how they ended up in my parents' attic in uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, uh, what the family connection was to these soldiers. And so um, it, it became a, a real adventure for us to try to put this all together. You know, we would uh, travel to the um, battlefields and take copies of the letters and show them to you know, park rangers and historians to be able to... And, and they were always very fascinated by the letters and finding... Interesting things, you know, sometimes things that we hadn't even noticed uh, that were significant in the letters and would take us to where our soldiers had been on the battlefields and, and traveling up to their hometown in Vermont and uh, finding all kinds of interesting things there. So it, it, it really, from the very beginning, has just been a, a fascinating journey for us as we've gone through this. And, and, and it took us a long time to go through the letters also because, um, you know, I, I've seen entire books based on someone having, you know, like, 20 letters from a Civil War soldier, 40 letters or 60. But we have about 250. So it was wow. a huge collection to, uh, to go through. So I can imagine taking them to a battlefield and showing a ranger what you've got here. They get all the time people saying, oh, I've got a family story I'll tell you, and they listen politely. But when right. someone has a trove of real original letters that have never been published, uh, that makes their day. Right. Uh, so so, so who... who Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, when you show them to someone, you know, like, say, uh, uh, Francis O'Reilly, uh, you know, the author of the Fredericksburg Campaign, uh, mm-hmm. showing him the letter early on in, um, uh, when we were visiting Fredericksburg, and he, he was uh, just you know, so excited, saying you know, he couldn't believe some of the things in this letter. And uh, we found that kind of reaction pretty much uh, everywhere we went. So tell us... The the letters that you quote in the book are are from a number of people, uh, some most from soldiers, some uh, from the home front to the soldiers, uh, but most of them are from from two brothers. Uh, give us a little bit of uh, uh, background on and who wrote most of these letters. Right. So um, so the two brothers, their their last name was Martin, and the um, one brother is uh, Henry. He's the younger brother, and then his older brother is Francis. They, um, they both wound up in the uh, Vermont Brigade, first, the 1st Brigade, yeah, which was the 2nd uh, through the 6th Infantry Regiments. And that is a brigade that was uh, re- you know, renowned for their uh, 
fighting ability and their their heroism. That uh, it, it's also the brigade that had more soldiers killed in it than any other Union brigade. And uh, and I think that uh, you know it, it might be uh, because Vermont had been given special permission to have their state named brigades. They, they may have fought the way they did. But uh, anyway, these two brothers are both part of that. Uh, Henry enters the, the war first. He, he's the younger That's brother. It. And he will um, have a uh, real exciting time of, you know, uh, in his early letters, he's, he's going to Washington, D.C. It's right after the first battle of Bull Run when he enters. So he's heading to Washington, D.C. and going by uh, train and by uh, steamboat and, uh, and having this, this real exciting experience when he gets there and is among all these soldiers and starts writing his letters. And it turns out he writes very well, partly because... Um, these uh, brothers are um, very well educated. That uh, even though they're coming from this rural area, central Vermont, the um, it's a time you know, of course, where there's no public high schools yet. Uh, but mm-hmm. uh, so for most people who have an education, their education's ended about eighth grade. But uh, for families that have a bit more money, they could then send their children to the private academies and uh, secondary schools and that's what uh, the martins did they um they, they do have a they, they uh were a relatively well-off family that uh in fact that was one of the amazing things when we went up there to um this little town of williamstown the first time uh we stopped at the uh local historical society and told them a little bit about having found these letters and said the, the letters are addressed to the father his name was uh, chester martin Mm-hmm. And we said, yeah, we know this was a century and a half ago, but have you ever heard of a Chester Martin farmer living somewhere around here? And the person in the historical society said, well, well, sure, Chester Martin, his house is right down the road. I'll give you directions. <laughs> we went down, and the um, the house is still there. It's this large brick house that um, it's now the front of a um, a nursing home where they've taken out the back wall and built the nursing home back behind. But the uh, the original house is still there. It's now like the uh, lobby and entrance area to the nursing home. And, in fact, it's even been decorated like 19th century. So, yeah, we had no idea we were going to walk into this. We walk into our soldier's house, we find it, and go in. It looks like it did at the time of the Civil War. But um, anyway, it's a, a very I, large... Let me just say a word. Mm-hmm. If I could just say a word about the house, uh, you have a photograph of the house in the book, and uh, it looks very similar to the, the house in which... Uh, I lived uh, our, our family house in Fort Wayne, Indiana, before we moved to East Carolina. Only lived there a few years, uh, but it was our, our favorite house ever. And when I turned the page and saw that house, you know, it's a classical, you know, sort of colonial style. Uh, uh, but boy, I looked at it and said, "Oh, that's my house!" <laughs> wow. Uh, it, 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 so, so I, I that really uh, just a sidelight. Sorry to interrupt on that yeah, personal that's point. Right. So, but um, so but yeah, this, this family did have money, and um, actually, the, the way that they made most of their money was they um, they grew willows. Um, mm. They had sort of a wet area in their uh, farmland, and these uh, these willows, they were able to uh, they would cut them down and they would take them to a manufacturer up in um, Waterbury, Vermont. In fact, it's on the uh, Pretty much the manufacturer is on where the Ben and Jerry's ice cream factory is located today in Waterbury. Ah. But uh, and then the willows be manufactured into um, baskets and baby carriages, things of that type, and they uh, end up making a lot of money. And so a lot of Henry's letters home, he's uh, always asking, "How are the willows doing?" Yeah, that's that's, that's their big source <laughs> of income. But 
So, um, so but at any rate, Henry does um, have a very good education. Um, his, he will uh, be attending Barry Academy, which uh, was a, um, well, the town of Williamstown is about six miles south of Barry. And, um, and Barry actually is where my father grew up. And so we always knew these letters had to be in some way connected to his family since uh, mm-hmm. Williamstown is uh, so close to Barry. And um, Barry is about six miles south of um, the state capital of Montpelier. So it's right, right there in the center of the state. So, uh, so Henry's gotten a good education there. His brother Francis uh, attended uh, Kimball Union Academy, which is a uh, private residential school in New Hampshire, which still exists today. And, um, and, and even their sister, and yeah, this would be a little unusual for a uh, young girl in a rural uh, farming area like this to begin going off to a secondary school, but uh, she had been uh, sent to this private secondary school to um, Mrs. Peabody's Select Family School for Young Women, which was uh, located on the campus of uh, Dartmouth University. And so, um, so, yeah, this is a family that very clearly values education. Well, let and, me ask a question about mm-hmm. that, if, if I yeah. could. Let me ask a question. Um, uh, Francis's letters, the, both of their letters are very well written. Uh, the language is wonderful and, and they're very evocative. But uh, Henry Martin's spelling is very idiosyncratic. Right. Uh, you yeah. re- re- reproduce it. Uh, why? Why did the brothers? Whereas Francis is very much a standard speller. Mm. Uh, why do you think they were different like that? Well, I, I don't think uh, spelling was quite as standardized at that point in time. That mm-hmm. um, you, know, you did have uh, the um, blueback speller, which <laughs> helped, uh, which a lot of schools were using at that point in time. But um, I, I, I think that uh, very often people still would just. Uh, Right phonetically, and that's certainly mm-hmm. certainly what Henry did. Exactly. So he serves in the Army of the Potomac, as you say. He he joins just after Bull Run. He sees sites in Washington D.C. Uh, he goes off to the Peninsula Campaign. Uh, he writes quite a bit about General McClellan. Would would, mm-hmm. would could you talk about his his views on on that famous general? Yeah, I mean, he is a very very strong supporter of McClellan. That. Uh, for, for quite a while. In fact, pretty much the whole time McClellan uh, is uh, in charge of the Army of the Potomac, he, he's, uh, he, he's strongly in his corner. Uh, at, uh, uh, at one point, uh, when um, he heard the rumor that uh, General Burnside would be replacing McClellan, he, he writes that if this rumor is true, we're doomed. You know, that's, uh, <laughs> you know, only McClellan uh, can save them. But he turns dramatically as, um, after McClellan is replaced and uh, he um, starts getting uh, more information. Uh, he turns uh, to the point where he basically calls McClellan a traitor, that, uh, um, feeling that uh, you know, he should have, uh, after Antietam, he should have uh, followed Lee and uh, destroyed his army. And so he, uh, he, he definitely changes his position on McClellan. Yeah, I thought that was fascinating watching that evolve through the letters from from a, an unlimited fan hero worship to uh, skepticism to to absolute uh, hostility. It's one of the many interesting things in in these letters. Um, so so he goes off. He, he's in the Peninsula Campaign. He's in these these battles. What um, uh, were, are there particular moments in in uh, Henry's military career that particularly grabbed you or, or, or surprised you as you were reading these letters? Yeah, that, um, well, certainly after, um, after the Peninsula Campaign, 
when they um, went to uh, South Mountain. And he's going to be uh, in the front line charging uh, up into Crampton's Gap. Uh, when he writes his letter home after that, he sounds like he's really just about had it. You know, this, is, uh, uh, this is much more than he expected. You know, he says it's like the cannons been exploding around them every day. and uh, they, uh, He, he uh, feels like he can't take it anymore. And he closes off that letter by uh, saying something to the effect that, uh, you know, even though he is very down, that uh, he will go wherever he, he's ordered. You know, that uh, he'll, uh, he'll do whatever's required of him. And as it turns out, within a day, he'll be at Antietam. <laughs> he's going to be <laughs> going into the uh, you know, bloodiest day of the Civil War. And so, um, but yeah, he does, he does do his duty and, and stays at it. And uh, he, um, yeah, he's, he's a very interesting person, I think, that uh, he um, uh, has very strong opinions about everything happening around him. And, and he does change his views. You know, like you said, uh, his views on McClellan changed and the, um, uh, his, his views on uh, the um, slaves will change as well. That uh, once he meets more slaves, you know, early on he's saying things to his parents. Yeah, because I'm not sure if they've ever even seen a black person up there in central Vermont. Mm-hmm. But um, he will. He writes um, early on to his parents about it would amuse them to see these uh, um, slaves running around these encountered down in Virginia. But then later on. He's saying things like he uh, had met the slave who um, was so intelligent, he said he should be going to college. And this is a point in time when just a very small elite of people in the country are going to college. Mm. And he's saying this this slave should be in college. And so uh, he does certainly change his opinion as time goes on. I thought that was interesting. I was definitely going to ask about that, the, the views that he has towards uh, the enslaved people he meets and how they evolve. That, that's something I I found in the soldiers I wrote about in, in the, the Western Front in the Army of the Ohio, that they are radicalized uh, by their exposure to slavery because in the North they often have never, as you say, never seen a black person. Right. Uh, and and you, you make the, he, well, Henry Martin makes the point some of the people he finds in slavery uh, are very light-skinned. Uh, they're, they're mixed-race people uh, other than having curly hair, they look uh, Euro-American to him, and it's yet another strike against slavery in his book. That, that these. Right. And the other thing he points out a number of times is he feels that slavery is um, really hurting the um, Southern whites in the sense that it makes them lazy and indolent. You know, they're just sitting around letting the slaves do the work, and they'd be better off if they were out there doing some work themselves. Yeah, it's a very New England attitude. Yep. <laughs> right, right. He's very harsh toward these these lazy uh, slaveholders who won't won't till their own fields. So uh, he also talks about civilians. Uh, his attitude toward the Southern civilians, uh, as you say, on the one hand, he regards them as uh, they'd be better off if they didn't have slaves. Uh, but he, he does he doesn't spare them. Uh, he, no, he's, he's even says a number of times how much better looking the people are in the north and uh, <laughs> so uh, now he fights through these battles he, he's in uh, at Antietam although 6th Corps uh, is, is not committed to the main fighting there but he's certainly engaged at, at uh, Fredericksburg and then Chancellorsville and uh, is, is makes a, a very hard set of marches to get to Gettysburg 
the other thing, one thing that, that I, I thought makes these letters particularly useful to somebody studying the Army of the Potomac is he writes so frequently, so not just the major battles, but the, the Bristow Station campaign or the Mine Run campaign, the ones that people who don't listen to shows like this have never heard of, he gives details on those too. You really realize there's not there's more than just the main battles. Right, and and some of the things he throws in, um, like like for example at um, Antietam, like you say, the uh, Sixth Corps. Well, at first it was engaged and then it was pulled back, and so uh, mm-hmm. it spent a lot of that battle just sitting up on a hillside. Uh, what and and when we visited there, our guide took us up to the hillside. We were able to sit where Henry sat and look down over the field oh, and see wow. what, what he was looking at. But um, the, in his letter after the battle, he um, one of the things he mentions is that. Uh, there were so many dead bodies to deal with, and he says that um, some of the soldiers began just to stack bodies up and burn them. Ugh. Now, when we were at NTMN and we showed that letter to one of the park rangers, he was just amazed by that. He said that he, he had heard stories that supposedly um, Union soldiers had begun burning bodies rather than trying to, to uh, deal with burying them. And he said this was the first time he'd ever seen a first-hand account of a letter saying that, yeah, that's what we did. We just uh, began burning the dead bodies. Wow. that That's, again, a, a real treasure trove of original information here. Well, we're going to take another break, come back, talk more with our guest tonight, Carlton Young, author of Voices from the Attic, The Williamstown Boys in the Civil War. Fascinating story of... Uh, Two brothers from Williamstown, Vermont, and uh, and their acquaintances and friends and family, and their uh, this this amazing trove of letters discovered from them. So we'll talk more about that in just a minute. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. 
And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Carlton Young, author of Voices from the Attic, The Williamstown Boys, and the Civil War. Been talking about the uh, remarkable story of uh, the the Martin brothers and the numerous, uh, literally hundreds of letters discovered in an attic uh, that these Civil War soldiers wrote to their home back in Vermont uh, during the war. Uh, Carlton, I wanted to ask you about the the letters. This book is not simply a, a it, it, it's not an annotated letter collection. Uh, in the sense of an archival publishing of all the letters, uh, it, it's rather you you heavily quote a lot of letters and stitch it together with commentary, giving the reader a sense of, of you know some context for each letter. How much of of what you found is in the book? Did you how much did you leave out? I'm, I'm curious about how much is re- is there altogether of the letters themselves. You mean of the letters themselves? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That um, we really only left out a um, small portion of things yeah, when they would be asking maybe about uh, certain relatives back home that really didn't seem significant or, you know, something of that type but aside from that this is pretty much everything that's there in the letters Okay. now we've been talking about Henry Martin uh, his brother uh, Francis Martin finally does enlist uh, uh, quite a bit later in the war uh, tell us a little bit about his story yeah so, um, so Francis is the older brother, but, but Francis has a lot of problems uh, that um, he had uh, like stomach disorders and you know, we, we found the, the medicine he was taking uh, things of that type but um, also he, he uh, seems to have had some sort of uh, uh, emotional psychological problems, he, he seems to have suffered from depression, you know, what they would have called melancholy back in those days and so now, Henry is someone who's always saying that every young guy should be joining up and doing their part in this war, but, but not his brother. He'd written home to his, his brother saying, this war is not for you. You, you should stay out of this. And, uh, hmm. But yeah, there's a lot of pressure on young guys to, to join up and, uh, and the financial and bounties you know, and things. So, so for whatever reason, he does join. And, uh, the, um, and he, he'll end up uh, in the um, second Vermont Regiment, so he's also uh, part of, this, of the Vermont Brigade, and uh, he um, he also uh, seems to be someone who doesn't have much way of friends. Uh, in, in one of his letters, he says he, he does he tells his parents he doesn't like going over to Henry's camp because there's so many young guys from Williamstown in that camp, and he uh, do, doesn't like seeing a lot of the people from his hometown. So, uh, yeah, you would think he's going to have a whole lot of problems, but uh, the um, funny thing. With Francis, is that uh, you know this war, it'll destroy so many young guys physically and mm-hmm. emotionally, so many ways. But but Francis is going to thrive in this this new environment. He seems to really like being a soldier, and so um, he'll become healthier than he's ever been before. He'll he'll attribute it to the uh, outdoor living, make him healthy, and he uh, he likes the food in camp. <laughs> he one of his letters he writes home that he likes. The camp food better than home cooking, which uh, made his mother feel great when she got that letter. But uh, he's, um, you know, he'll, he'll really uh, do well. Uh, and um, Henry writes him a letter and says they've been on a long march, and Francis handled it, you know, better than Henry, even though Henry's been doing this for a couple of years at that point. And in uh, another letter, uh, Henry writes home to his parents. He says he was over to Francis' camp to see him. He says, and Francis was happy. You know, and he underlines the word happy. Like, can you believe it? 
Francis wow. is finally happy. So, uh, um, and the early uh, campaign to then, like in Mine Run, and uh, he handles himself well, and things seem to be going uh, going going very well for him. But uh, that then changes very dramatically when you uh, get to uh, uh, Grant's Overland campaign. It, it does. One one thing he does that maybe gives him uh, identity, a sense of, of accomplishment, is uh, he, he not only writes letters home to his family, as so many soldiers did, but he also does something that uh, a lot of soldiers also did, which is write anonymous letters to be published, uh, uh, public letters. He uses the pen name Conscript. Right. And, uh, and these letters, uh, a lot of listeners may have read Wilbur Fisk's letters where he does... Right. Uh, uh, it's a famous collection, but there are many others, the soldiers who write these letters f- with the intent that they be published. And those letters are just wonderful descriptions of camp life and marching. And and, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and, and he sounds like someone who's really in, in command of, of, of his experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he had been a um, newspaper correspondent for his hometown before entering the war. So I think he probably... Uh, Used that then to make uh, an arrangement with uh, the Vermont Chronicle that he would be a uh, war correspondent for them. And he uh, called himself conscript, even though he had enlisted. So mm-hmm. I think he probably did that to try to fool people so they wouldn't know who he was. But uh, yeah, so many uh, things in those, uh, like, 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 for example, in one of those um, newspaper dispatches, and, and, and what had happened was once we found out his, um, his pseudonym, we were able to go up to Montpelier and find 19th century newspapers on microfilm and go back and find then all of his dispatches, all the ones marked uh, conscript. There were 12 of them they sent back. But um, the things uh, he talks about, like in one of them, he um, says, you know, maybe you'd be interested in knowing how we make our winter quarters. And he mm-hmm. goes through this long, long description, step by step, of uh, everything involved in putting the winter quarters together. And But other thing, you know, like, uh, he's got a, um, he describes like the best way to make coffee over an open campfire and uh, a, uh, his recipe for taking hardtack and making it into a tasty pudding and, you know, all these things. And, uh, yeah, just a great deal of information he throws into those articles. Yeah, they, they really are wonderful. Uh, but then, as you say, the, the Overland Campaign begins a Battle of the Wilderness, May 1864. Uh, and, and here things uh, things begin to turn for the brothers. Yeah, because uh, the um, the Vermont Brigade ends up in a very precarious position there. That uh, you know a lot of the initial uh, they're in the Sixth Corps. A lot of the initial fighting involved the uh, Fifth Corps. But then uh, the uh, Grant learned that the uh, uh, there was a um, uh, Confederate Corps um, moving up towards the intersection then of the. Uh, Brock Road and the uh, Orange Plank Road, and mm-hmm. so the uh, Vermont Brigade was detached from the uh, Sixth Corps and sent down to that intersection, and uh, Hancock's Second Corps was to join them there to uh, defend that position, but unfortunately Hancock did not get the orders right away, so the Vermont Brigade arrived alone at that, uh, at that intersection. They um, had... Uh, I think about uh, 2,800 men at that point, and they will be facing a Confederate Corps of about 14,000 coming at them, mm. and they will um, refuse to fall back, and, and eventually uh, Hancock does uh, come up and join them, but uh, in the process, the uh, Vermont Brigade uh, 
of those 2,800, um, more than uh, 1,200 were casualties in that uh, fighting there in the, in the, in the wilderness. And um, uh, both Henry and Francis wound up being casualties. Uh, Henry much more seriously uh, shot in the chest at that point. So uh, I, I'm tempted uh, not to uh, give away the, the ending, uh, urge our, our readers to get a copy of this book and find out. Uh, we'll leave Henry there in the wilderness momentarily. Uh, the Sixth Corps is eventually transferred to the Shenandoah Valley, and uh, Francis goes along there. And, and here, you, you tell us this in the first chapter of the book, it's sort of uh, not a flashback, what's the opposite, uh, the teaser where you look ahead. Mm-hmm. And we learned that that, uh, that Francis would be severely wounded uh, fighting at, at Cedar Creek in, in the Shenandoah Valley. Uh, what happened to him? Okay, so, yeah, so the, in the, uh, at Cedar Creek, you know, of course, Jubal Early has surprised them early in the morning, and um, uh, the um, Vermont Brigade is going to, find that all these Union soldiers are running back to their camp, and so they try to set up a defensive position. And Francis sees one of his friends go down. He goes over to try to help him, and Francis is shot uh, just above the ankle and um, will be taken off into uh, a uh, battlefield hospital area. are going to uh, uh, give him chloroform, telling him they don't know if they're going to be able to... uh, uh, save his foot or have to amputate, and, and when he wakes up, means that they have um, amputated uh, just um, uh, just uh, around the ankle area, and uh, then he is sent to a um, better facility, a military hospital up uh, closer to Washington D.C. And there they found that the amputation was done so poorly, you know, with um, bones still sticking out, they had to reamputate, and so. Uh, eventually, he'll end up with the uh, amputation up above his knee, and uh, we actually found a photograph then in the uh, archives at the University of Vermont that uh, his doctor had uh, had this amazing book, this handwritten book that uh, Dr. Henry Jane from uh, Waterbury had um, put together. This book where he has a handwritten description of each patient on the uh, right-hand side of the page and a photograph of the patient on the left-hand side. And so we had the description of what he had done with uh, um, Francis and the photograph of uh, Francis after the amputation. Wow. So, so an unlucky uh, double amputee of, of the same leg, though. Right. Now, I, I'm curious, I'm sure listeners would be curious, to know, where, where are the letters today? Um, we've uh, placed them in a um, storage facility that... Uh, is um, climate controlled and they're in acid-free folders. And people have actually told me that, you know, they, they bounced around to these attics for a century and a half. And the fact that they were jammed together in a wooden box actually was a uh, pretty good thing from what people have told me that that, uh, that helped to preserve them because they were really in, uh, in excellent shape. Well, that, that's good to know. So uh, people can... Uh, you know, they will be preserved, hopefully, for future generations, and certainly people can read about them here in Voices from the Attic. Uh, I, I believe I saw a reference. You have a website uh, regarding this project as well. Is that true? Right. Yeah, we have um, the I, um, website for the book and then uh, a website that gives uh, more information 
as well uh, on the last page of the book a, uh, website for those who want to learn more about uh, different things discussed in the book. And let's, there we are, www.martinletters.com. Right. So, uh, listeners, you can check that out uh, as well as uh, the book itself. And so you've Facebook, done... Uh, Facebook page oh, as well for, uh, for Voices from the Attic. Well, there we go. So it's a, you want to reach the public in all kinds of ways. Um, and you've done a lot of speaking. Uh, when I was just looking up... Uh, contact information for you uh, before we get in touch with you. I saw you have talked to a lot of Civil War roundtables, a lot of other groups. Is that still going well? Yeah, yeah. That, uh, that's, this is not the way I, I had envisioned the retirement. You know, I thought I'd be sitting around the back porch <laughs> reading old books and things, but uh, yeah, I'd spend a lot of time uh, uh, talking to Civil War roundtables and historical societies and libraries. Um, uh, mostly, so far, it's been Western Pennsylvania and Ohio and in the New England states and uh, Vermont. And well, actually, in Vermont, I actually was able to give a talk in the house of our two soldiers, which was uh, really neat there in the hometown. But uh, a number of other uh, places as well. And so uh, it's uh, it's definitely been a real interesting experience going going around and giving uh, giving all these talks. It, it it really it shows also. Uh, how things have changed in Civil War research. You mentioned in the book using Ancestry.com to uh, get in touch with people related to your family and help solve the mystery of how the Martin brothers are connected through your father's family and how those how the letters end up uh, in his attic. Yeah, I I found a cousin I never even knew I had, and she ended up having a few letters that had gotten separated from the large collection we had, and she had Henry Seward, so I was able to uh, go and actually uh, hold on to his sword. Wow, it, it is really uh, just a series of amazing stories. So, um, do you envision a future project? Uh, I mean, this one came came your way serendipitously, uh, uh, but uh, do you do you see yourself writing another Civil War book? Uh, not unless I come across another treasure trove of letters. I don't <laughs> think that this is this is probably going to be it. But uh, uh, like I said, I'm really enjoying going around giving talks, and so I expect to. Uh, continue doing that quite a bit and uh, there's a whole lot of parts of the country I haven't uh, uh, talked to people yet and uh, I'm going to try to start arranging things. Well uh, listeners, you'll want to get a copy of, of this book, Voices from the Attic The Williamstown Boys and the Civil War by Carlton Young uh, It is not every day that, that a new collection of letters comes out uh, one that is so detailed and so well written and, and uh the, the way it's produced here with just enough context to let you know what's going on, not too much. It assumes you already know something about the war, which is important. Uh, really, it's well well put together, uh, uh, truly and, uh, an unusual find and, and, and a great uh, thing for Civil War readers to have. So, listeners, you want to get yourself a copy. And, uh, Carlton, thank you so much for being on the show tonight. Okay, well, thanks for inviting me. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.